ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Here we are, RFM. We are back. It's, it's what is this, episode like 30-something, right? It is 30-something, and I'm not sure. It's 33. It says so right up there at the top of the screen. Look at that. Mormonism Live, episode 33. Um, didn't do we, like, didn't Jesus live to be like 33 years old? Wasn't there like 13 steps in the Kirtland Temple um, for that represented each year of the life of Jesus Christ? And I think he lived to be 33 years old. Wow. I guess it depends on which gospel you're reading. Oh, uh, it's the Mormon gospel. Okay, then 33, definitely. James E. Talmadge or something. I'm not sure. Which also happens to be the same number of people I baptized on my mission to Japan. 33 people baptized in Japan. Was this with like, was this baseball stuff that you got them going? No, no, no. None no, of that. No, no trickery, no sleight of hand, no manipulation. These people got a testimony via the Holy Ghost and they entered the waters of baptism with RFM, uh, doing the teaching or doing the baptizing or some part of that process. Yes. They got a testimony by a radio free Mormon. Awesome. Awesome. Um, before you get started, you've got the episode this week, which I am, I am just sitting here tickled pink, ready to right. have this conversation. Uh, let me fix my camera just a little bit, but folks, if you could, there's 126 of you already in here. If you could, uh, if you could go on to iTunes or other places where you're finding this podcast, leave us a five star or 10 star or, a plus or whatever the review system is for that. I think we've got 145 reviews on Apple on the iTunes, Apple iTunes podcast uh, app, but we'd love to, we'd love to make that 300. And uh, you know, the reviews on our YouTube videos and on this stuff is super high. Like we're, we're kind of like 99 out of a hundred people like us. Well, that's great. It is, isn't it? That's fantastic. <laughs> to quote one of my favorite movies, all are welcome, all welcome. This podcast has many hearts. Yeah, look at that. This podcast. Credit, credit for the first person who comes up with the, the right name for the movie in the comments. Um, somebody will. Uh, it won't be. Oh, me. I know they will. <laughs> All right. I will turn the time over to you, my friend. All right. Well, we are going to be talking about a harrowing experience that President Russell M. Nelson had back in the 1970s when he was aboard an airplane and there was a a huge, huge problem with the airplane, went to a spiral nosedive after one of the engines, the right engine, I believe, exploded and it blew flaming fuel all over the right side of the um I mean this yeah, this plane, plane was on fire, right? This plane was yeah. this plane was definitely this was a this was a, 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 a I don't know even how to describe it. It the 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 scene if I was up in the sky watching this thing, it would look like a ball of fire going through the sky right it is this would this is what we call a bad scene yeah it doesn't and so look good. it goes into a spiral almost right drilling into the earth but in the nick of time the pilot gets the left engine going saves them from imminent disaster lands them in a farmer's field outside of delta utah do you know where delta utah is bill um i'm not familiar with delta i live down here at the end destination where they right. were going to come into St. George, but uh, I don't know where Delta's at. Right, because as we follow the story, we find out that he was flying from Salt Lake City to St. George, right? 
Yeah, Salt Lake City to St. George. You got it. Yes, and we asked uh, Dieter Uchtdorf if he would come on the show to be our, our expert <laughs> in being yeah. a pilot. Here's what we got. Here's the response we got. Yes, and I can almost hear that German accent on that cricket, too. Oops, That's a German cricket. Yeah, he would have been a good one to have. Unfortunately, he didn't uh, He didn't uh, respond back to our invitation. Yeah, the, the problem with German crickets is that every few decades or so, they try to take over the world. Right. You can. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you can tell a German cricket. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so we got to get to this because there's a lot to get through, right? There is, there is a lot. So, I was worried we wouldn't be able to, and I've already, I've already taken up a few minutes, and now you've added one or two. So here we go. President Nelson has told the story time and time and time again since 1979, and the most recent iteration of the story was done by video for this past Easter by the way, this is July 21st, 2021, for those folks from the future. Hello, if you're watching, that's now. And so this past Easter was Easter of 2021. And this was part of, let me see here. I think you've got that clip, don't you? This is called The Peace and Hope of Easter, colon, President Russell M. Nelson's Palm Sunday Invitation. So this may have come out uh, the week before Easter if it's Palm Sunday. Anyway. The very first part of this video, for the first, I think, uh, minute and 42 seconds or so, he recounts this story. So as I say, this is the most recent iteration of the story. So if we can play that, we'll have a good starting point. And this is 16 seconds to like a minute 42, right? You can start at the very beginning. It's fine. Very beginning. All right, we'll do that. Let me put this up on the screen. I hope I've got the right thing, but this should be because it. Because of Jesus Christ? We celebrate Easter, and Easter is all about peace and hope. And speaking of peace and hope, here's a great story. decades of church service, I've had some unforgettable moments while traveling. One occurred years ago while flying to the inauguration of a university president, where I was to offer the invocation. It was a short flight in a small two-engine plane, we were halfway to our destination when the right engine suddenly exploded, spewing flaming fuel all over the right side of the plane. The plane was on fire, careening to the earth in a spiral dive. I expected to die. Miraculously, the dive extinguished the fire. The pilot was able to restore power to the other engine and make a safe landing. And I actually made it to the inauguration on time. Throughout that dramatic, unexpected experience, I was surprisingly calm. My entire life flashed before me. While approaching what seemed to be certain death, I was at peace. I knew that my wife and I were sealed to each other eternally and our children were sealed to us. Thanks to the Lord, I knew we would all be together again. I was at peace, ready to meet my maker. For the past year, we have all been okay. dealing with dramatic... Now he switches to talk about other things, but that's the story. That's the most recent time that story's been told by video. And 
if we break this down, first off, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be analyzing the story. It's different permutations over the years. And then we're going to be talking about some very interesting research that's been done regarding this story by some other people. And I'll introduce them as we go along. However, the very first thing that we notice, first off from this story, he was on a plane, President Nelson, it's flying a short distance. We find out later it's from Salt Lake City to St. George. Number two, flying, he was flying to give an invocation at the inauguration of a university president. We'll find out later that's, of course, Dixie University in St. George, which makes sense. It was in a small two-engine plane, he mentions. They were halfway to the destination. Right engine, kaboom, explodes. Flaming fuel all over the right side of the plane. We're down to number seven now. Careening to the earth in a spiral dive. Number eight. The dive extinguished the fire, he adds miraculously to his description. Number nine, the pilot was able to restore power to the other engine, the left engine, right? The left engine, correct? To make a safe landing in the nick of time. And number 10, he made it to the inauguration on time. And number 11, during the emergency, he was at peace knowing he had been sealed to his family and he was ready to meet his maker, okay? so. Jumping ahead, what we're going to find out is that this flight happened in November of 1976. And the first time he tells his story is 1979. Now, this is in his book that he wrote about himself. It's an autobiography. It's called From Heart to Heart. Get it? He's a heart surgeon. He's a Yeah, he's a heart surgeon. So got to have okay. the heart joke in there. Right. So. Uh, this is what he writes about this. Uh, and it's interesting in this point because this is a bit different in the most recent permutation. And in fact, in every single other telling of the story after 1979, and there are quite a number of them, he's very clear that the main lesson from the story is that he was at peace and ready to meet his maker because he had done everything he was supposed to do. He was right with the Lord. He's been sealed to his family, etc. But in 1979, when he tells the story, what he what he says is, is that this experience that he had on the airplane gave him the final nudge that he needed to write his autobiography. Because apparently he'd been thinking about it, maybe working on it here and there for some time, but he'd never really gotten around to sitting down and writing it out. And that was something he'd been meaning to do, but hadn't, and this experience on the airplane was the final nudge that he needed to sit down, write the story, which is why it appears first in his autobiography, right? The autobiography is what he writes because of this nudge that he got. So this is what he says there. This is a quote. The final nudge came as I was a passenger in a small airplane plummeting earthward with one of its two engines exploded. I realized then, although the spiritual and material needs for my family had been provided, I had not left for them a reasonable recapitulation of my life that they could review. The safe emergency landing of that disabled aircraft provided me with the change I needed. So that's what he learns from this experience in 1979 is he needs to quit putting off writing down his autobiography and do so. And that will change in all the subsequent iterations of the story. Of course, he doesn't need it anymore for the impetus to write his autobiography because he did that in 1979. And the next time we pick it up in 1985, it will be, he'll be
be figuring out not that he needs to write his autobiography, but that he's right with the Lord and he's been sealed to his family. So he's ready to meet his maker. Okay. Any questions so far? None from me. Okay. Then let's go. Ooh, we lost your sound for just a second. Yeah. That's because I was coughing. I was trying right. to be polite to the audience. It's okay. I'm in total control here, <laughs> which is a scary thought. So 1985, this is in, um, this is in a book that's written about him by uh, Mr. Condi, yeah, Russell M. Nelson, father, surgeon, and apostle. Okay, so a book about him, 1985. So this is what's written there. I was in an airplane going from Salt Lake City to St. George. Okay, so we get those details, right? To participate in a function at Dixie College. We were in one of those small commuter airplanes. There were about six passengers in it. The pilot had just announced that we were over the halfway point between Salt Lake City and St. George. Now, there's a very interesting part here where he adds this detail. He says, we were past the point of no return. I thought, well, that's a weird announcement to make. So, so the pilot set it over the intercom or turned around in a small plane and told it to the passengers. Yes. Yeah, right, because it's a very small plane, so it might not have this complete, you know, separated cockpit. Right. But he makes a point out of this, and I'm going to start deconstructing right here, and then we'll get into the rest of the permutations, okay? This is a very, very strange thing. Yeah, it would be a weird thing for a pilot to say we're past the point of no return, because first off, a pilot wouldn't say that, all right? It sounds ominous, and that's why it would be weird for a pilot to say that. We're past the point of no return. The re not only would, would not a pilot say that, it wouldn't have even been true. Okay? Yeah. And it wouldn't have been true for a number of reasons. Let's go to this point of no return, shall we? Okay? This is not something that non-pilots typically know. I happen to know it, but only because I watch John Wayne movies. And there's a very famous 1954 John Wayne movie called The High and the Mighty. And it's got a famous score by Dmitry Tiomkin. And John Wayne is a pilot in a plane. It is a passenger plane. It's flying from Hawaii to California. And I think it was San Francisco airport that it's flying to. Okay. And the whole centerpiece of the movie is the fact that on route from or en route from Hawaii to San Francisco, they go past the point of no return. Now, this is something that they talk about among the pilots, but it's not something you tell the passengers, okay, because we're past the point of no return. It sounds pretty ominous. What it means is this, is that you have gone past the point where you can safely return to where you came from, okay? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So in the movie, they've gone past the point where they don't have enough fuel to get back to Hawaii. And of course, this is the tension and the drama of the entire episode. And I think it's some of the drama that President Nelson's trying to get into his story as well, is that when you're past the point of no return, you are committed. You can't go back. You can only go onward to your destination. Another thing about point of no return, the point of no return is almost never going to be the halfway point between point A and point B. Because if the point of no return were halfway between point A and point B, in this case, Salt Lake City and St. George, it would mean that there was only enough fuel in the plane to just barely get you to St. George. Does that make sense? 
It does. And I want to add something when you're done making this point, but it does. Okay. Because you would never do that. Of course, you can have more fuel on the plane than you need to get where you're going. You don't want to be flying in there on fumes, right? Right. You've got more fuel on a plane than you need to get where you're going. Always. Unless there's something, you know, horrible that happens and you lose fuel. Yeah. But because of that, the point of no return is going to be maybe between 60 to 80% of the distance between point A and point B, okay? So that's what the point of no return is. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the point of no return applies only if there are not other places where you could safely land. Amen. So if you're flying from Hawaii to San Francisco, there's nothing but water. Yeah. Okay, you can't land anywhere. If you're going to land, you're going to have to put it down in the ocean. And that ends up being at the end of the, you know, spoiler alert for this 1954 movie, right? At the end, the big the big tension is whether they're going to try for the airport or you're going to have to put it down in the water off the California coast, okay? Uh, I think they make the airport. Duke saves the day. But that's what the point of no return is. However, between Salt Lake City and St. George, there are multiple airports. How many do you think there is? There's at least two. Two. I know there's one in Delta, the Delta Municipal Airport, and that will become important later on, okay? Because Delta is basically, it's the halfway point between Salt Lake City and St. George. And that airport, I did some research on it, it opened in 1943. So it was definitely open, up and running back in 1976 when this occurred. So the point of the return has no bearing at all. It wouldn't be just a weird thing for the pilot to say. He would never say it, even if it were really the point of no return to the passengers. The job of the pilot is to keep passengers calm, not to get him excited or upset. So, uh, and the second thing, he wouldn't say it because it wasn't the point of no return. The halfway point would not be a point of no return, even if there were no other airports. And the point of no return makes no sense when there are other places where you can land. Okay. Are you there, my friend? No, no, I'm with you 100%. Okay. So going back to this, excuse me. Um, this is the 1985 recapitulation in that book by uh, Mr. Condi. So he says, uh, we were past the point of no return. And he makes a point of saying that that's what the pilot said because he reacts to it by saying, I thought, well, that's a weird announcement to make. Yeah, it would be. Then he goes on. Shortly after that, the engine on the right wing of the airplane burst open in flames, spewing oil all over the right side of the plane. The propeller became starkly still. Notice the alliteration. The propeller became starkly still and the whole engine was on fire. We then went into a dive earthward. I assumed that my life was going to be terminated right then and there with extreme prejudice. I added the extreme prejudice part. The poor lady across the aisle from me, this is President Nelson, The poor lady across the aisle from me was in absolute hysterics. She was right there where the flames were the brightest, but the pilot had turned off the ignition that fed more gas into the fire and had purposely been in a steep dive, hoping that the flames might be extinguished, which was what happened. Then with the power still left in the other propeller, which he then turned on, just as we were about ready to have our moment of impact, He was able to glide us following a highway, which is probably Highway 50 when you look at a map, until we could make an emergency landing. Okay, so there's other things that he says in there. He talks again about um, how I'm pleased to report that I was really prepared. I knew I was facing death and I was calm as a summer's morning. 
<laughs> I knew that the most important thing I had ever done was to marry Danzel White in the temple on August 31st. That I hope Wendy's not reading this. That all of the children that have come into our home were born in the covenant, all faithful, and I was ready to die. So that's the 1985 version of it. We get some additional insight into that and additional details. All right. Um, I'm not going to go through those. I have a uh, different seven points, but I think it's pretty clear what the additional information is. Then in 1992, um, Doors of Death, that's the name of his talk from General Conference, April 1992, where he talks about it. So if the title of his um, talk is Doors of Death, you're going to figure out that this story is going to be uh, front and center. And it is. And he talks about, I remember vividly an experience, blah, blah, blah. And when I say blah, 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 all I'm saying is this is all stuff that we don't need to repeat over and over because they're details that we've already established. Yeah. He says, as he talks about it being a steep spiral dive, he says, miraculously, the precipitous dive extinguished the flames. By the way, I understand about a pilot turning off fuel to extinguish a fire. So you're not getting more fuel there. The steep dive is a little bit confusing to me because if you're diving, what you're doing is you're going faster, which is feeding more oxygen into the flame, which probably wouldn't blow it out. It'd probably just make it burn more because that's what wind does on the flame, right? Yeah. So I don't know if that's true. It was if, if this story is true and I've got my doubts and we'll go into that more later about any of this. If it had happened and the fire went out, it's probably because the pilot cut the fuel to the to the engine, right? Yeah, I think the argument would be like a birthday cake with candles. If you put enough, you know, movement of air across the candle, even though oxygen does extinguish a candle by blowing so fast that you essentially um, uh, hit it with such pressure that the flame is immediately pushed away and mm -hmm. now it doesn't have a chance to start back up. But this is different. There is flammable liquid, according to President Nelson, all over the side of this airplane. Right. So I'm not an authority on that. I'm not going to sit here and say it absolutely would not do that. I just have my doubts. Okay. That's a question mark for me. And I, I want to say one more thing, which is the point of no return. You know, if you have no engines, you can only get as far as you essentially coasting back to somewhere could get. So you might not even be near halfway. You might only be 10 minutes away, but if you have no engines, maybe, maybe that's, you know, as far as you can get with having no power at all. But as again, the answer though, is as you're pointing out, there are multiple airports along the way. We're talking anywhere that would have a landing field. It doesn't have to be a, a, a municipal airport. It can be a small little uh, airport that, you know, in a small town or something. And there are some of those. There are places for people to land things. And again, worst comes to worst, you've always got the highway or something too, if you had to, to do some kind of emergency landing. Right. Um, yeah. Even as you seek, ocean. I was going to say, even as you seek to justify it, I have problems because the announcement about the point of no return is clearly in the 1985 version said by the pilot before the problem with the engine. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and there's other, there's so many other issues too, that some of these aren't, you know, aren't really a big deal maybe. And others of these are, as we're going to find out, I think are much more serious. Right. So then he goes miraculously, that word crops up quite frequently in the retelling of the story. Miraculously, the precipitous dive extinguished the flames. Then by starting up the other engine, the pilot was able to stabilize the plane and bring us down safely. Okay. I'm not going to read the rest of it because he goes on to talk about, you know, I knew I was right with God. I'm prepared to meet him. I'm calm. Okay. I've been sealed. By the way, when, when he said on multiple occasions that his life flashed before him, Mm -hmm. And he said on multiple occasions that he was really calm and confident in the life that he had lived. 
And generally, when our life passes in front of us, it's because we are having mass hysteria over the fact that our death is coming. When it is, when we're calm about that kind of thing happening, something is harrowing, but it's not bothering us. We tend to, I don't think most people have the life flash before their eyes. That tends to be something when you begin to panic or sense that your life is coming to an end and you're trying to intervene and do something to stop it. That is a very interesting point that you make there, Mr. Real. It occurs to me that if this happened right now when President Nelson is 96, that could be a very long flash. His life before. <laughs> it's, a of, it's a lot of memories if he doesn't have dementia like President Monson did. Maybe not so many. It wouldn't be so long back in 1976. No, not, not as much. I mean, he'd still be like 65. But I do want to focus on that again because I had not thought of that. Yeah. Uh, this idea that, yeah, the idea of the life flashing in front of you is usually what happens when you're going to die and you're very concerned about it, yes. not if you're calm about it, which is what oh, he yeah. describes himself as being. Hmm. Yep. That's another interesting anomaly in the story. So let's go to 1992. We just talked about 1985 and 1992. This source, this, no, I, that was the one we talked about. General Conference, April 1992, excuse me, 1995. It shows up again. And this is in a book that Russell and Nelson wrote called The Gateway We Call Death. This is why we call this President Nelson's Flight of Death, because he's the one who keeps using death over and over when he's used yeah. talking about it. And 1995, basically what he does is he's he's quoting himself. He's quoting his 1992 conference doc. OK. And this is sometimes what uh, general authorities will do is they will publish a book, which is nothing but a collection of general conference talks they've given. So I don't know if that's this, but. He's quoting in 1995, the 1992 conference talk that we just talked about. In 2003, let's see where this was. 2003, um, hmm, well, I'm not sure exactly about that particular reference. I'll look it up later, excuse me. But here's where we get to uh, the date of November 12th, 1976. We haven't had a date yet. 2003. So 2003 is where this, this, I think you said 1993, but 2003. Oh, I apologize if I said no, that. No, yeah, 2003. No. So here, here he tells the story again. It says, the imminent prospect of death places in bold relief the things that matter most in life. Elder Nelson related just such an experience. So this is being written about the experience, obviously with uh, President Nelson's help, I would assume, about just, okay, Elder Nelson related just such an experience. He had November 12th, 1976. Mark that date down. And that's when it was quoted. I was in an airplane going from Salt Lake City to St. George to participate in a function at Dixie College. Okay. Yeah. So it's November 12th, 1976. He's flying down there to give the invocation at the inauguration of the new president of Dixie College. That's the, uh, the situation. There's some other things there, which we've already heard before. So I will. It's actually a recapitulation of what was in the 1985 book. This actually looks like a reprint or a republication of the 1985 book by Spencer J. Condy. And this uh, additional detail was added in the, the new version or the second edition. That's yeah. my guess on it. Yeah, this is Condy's. So this source, the 2003, is Condy's Russell M. Nelson, Father, Surgeon, Apostle. So perhaps, as you're pointing out, that the book was originally done in 85 and they did a redo. Yeah, I think that that makes the most sense out of it. Mm -hmm. But we get that important detail. In 2004, 
this is from uh, a fellow named Jason Svensson, or Swenson, who's writing for the Church News, September 17, 2004, in an article titled Gospel Principles Vital to Correct Living. And there, Jason Svensson writes, Elder Nelson spoke of a harrowing trip he once made on a small airplane. One of the plane's motors exploded an hour after takeoff. Okay, mark that as well. That's important. And I, I had somebody who's very intelligent, who's obviously not me, but he's a researcher. I'll bring him up here in a second. Look at this because I thought that's kind of strange because remember when I was down there in St. George and I was making a, a presentation. So I've flown a couple of times from Salt Lake City to St. George and it's about an hour. It's actually a little bit less than an hour. And then he says an hour after takeoff, one of the plane's motors exploded. And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense today. But in 1976, flying one of these small commuter planes, maybe it would. And this individual is named Dr. Moore. That's what he posts under. He doesn't want to use his real name uh, for reasons which I will keep private, but which will probably be obvious to most of the listeners. He looked it up. And back then, for a commuter plane to make it from Salt Lake City to St. George did take about two hours. Okay. So one hour would have been in the middle of the trip. So one of the plane's motors exploded an hour after takeoff. I only bring this up and emphasize it because it will become important later. Sending the aircraft into a spiral dive, the dive fortuitously doused the fire sparked by the explosion and the pilot was able to regain control and land the plane safely. Okay. So that's 2004, then 2006. It comes up again. This is, um, once again, this is Deseret News in an article written by Carrie A. Moore, C-A-R-R-I-E. And she writes, once again, 2006, those who have lived to tell the tale about a brush with violent death often recount the horror of knowing they were about to die, as did a woman on a small plane with Elder Nelson several years ago. Remember, she's the one who was hysterical, she not President Nelson. Do. She was panicking. She, her life flashed before her eyes. I don't think it was President Nelson. <laughs> uh, yeah, it goes on. One of the engines blew up and the plane caught fire, sending it into a steep dive as they were en route from Salt Lake City to St. George. In the few seconds that passed before the pilot was able to shut off the fuel line and extinguish the flames, Elder Nelson recalls that his entire life passed through his mind amid the hysterical screams from the woman in the next seat. Okay, would you please shut up over there? I'm enjoying my life flashing in front of my eyes. <laughs> Peanuts, please. It's like people talking during a movie. You just hate that, don't you? Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyway, um, then 2011, this is, uh, once again, Russell and Nelson now. Oh, this is a video that was done for the church. It's called Men's Hearts Shall Fail Them. And we actually have that clip, but um, if you want to just put it in the show notes, we don't have to play it. But what he does here, what this ends up being is the, the shots that we have on the video from this past Easter that we already played that show the interior of the plane, you know, and it doesn't show people's faces, but it shows like their arms and this and the, the window of the plane. All those are from this 2011 video. They reuse those. But in the 2011 video, they once again have Russell Nelson narrating the story, just like in the more recent video except that it's obviously a much younger President Nelson because it's 2011. Well, much younger, maybe overstating it. It's a younger President Nelson, all right? So uh, he adds the part in that telling, we made an emergency landing out in a field. Everything else, pretty much the same. 
but we made an emergency landing out in the field. And I tell you what, we haven't, we've been listening a lot to me. Can you play that? Do you, can you see that in, in, the sh in my notes, page six, bottom? Okay, give me just a moment. So we are on the 2004, correct? Church uh, 2011. 2011. Let me grab that one. I'm on page six. I don't know if you have it on my my notes. I do. So let me. Uh, you want to start from the beginning? Yeah, it just goes for the first minute. Okay, that's going to be this thing, right? And you'll see that's this exact same interior shot. I was in a small airplane, and all of a sudden, the engine on the wing caught fire. It exploded and burning oil was poured all over the right side of the airplane and we started to dive toward the earth. We were spinning down to our death. Oh, this woman across the aisle, I just was so sorry for her. She was just absolutely uncontrollably hysterical. And I was calm. I was totally calm, even- I just wanna, before I, before I continue, I just wanna note again, there's a woman across the aisle hysterical and he's calm, and somehow he still has the wherewithal to think about his life as it's flashing before him. I, I, I just don't. Anyway, I'll continue. Sorry. It doesn't seem to match, does it? You're right. It doesn't feel like in that moment as he's taking an awareness of the woman across the aisle that he's inside his own head being present with what's happening and, and considering his life, if that makes sense. All yeah. right, here it is. I knew I was going down to my death. I was ready to meet my maker. We didn't crash. We didn't die. The spiral dive extinguished the flame. The pilot got control and started the other engine up. We made an emergency landing out in the field. But I thought through that experience, if you've got a faith, you can handle difficulties knowing that with an eternal perspective that all will be well. In Luke, there you go. Money one. That's the first minute. <laughs> He'll go on to other things, but he uses this as the focal point for many of his talks, as you can tell. So, out in the field is where they end up landing on that one. Okay, that'll be important as well. All right, now 2018, there are several instances of this being reported. Um, I'm not going to go through those. There's one, uh, once again, Church News, September 16th, 2018. Um, and that recounting the downward spiral, spiral becomes a free fall, which extinguished the flames. By the way, I want to make a distinction between reporters talking about what they say they heard President Nelson talk about, mm -hmm. because they can change the words. The free fall, that's probably what the reporter said. I'm not saying that President Nelson said that, but he is on record about this downward spiral. Yeah. Oh, let me bring up one other thing here, okay? It is clear from the tellings of the story so far that the left engine, the right engine exploded, but the left engine also failed, okay? And the reason why that's clear from the story is because he says that right before they hit, right there in the, this death spiral, right before they hit, the pilot was what? Do you remember? Uh-uh. Oh, he's able to start up the left engine. Oh, that's right, he starts up the other engine. Yeah, and in that video that we just played, he says the pilot got control and started the other engine up. This is a constant part of the story. Yeah. Now the problem. Yeah. Play, I said this plays in later. Obviously, the connection we all need to make right now is that that other engine prior to that was off. 
Yeah, you don't need to start an engine up unless the engine stops, right? Correct. Okay, and he never specifically says the left engine went out, but it's obviously implicit in the story if the, right before they hit, the pilot's able to start the left engine up and save them from catastrophe. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is it's bad enough luck to have your right engine explode, but on these types of planes, and by the way, I'm going, I'm not a pilot, but I am going off the research of a person I know who is a pilot, okay, and has flown these kinds of planes and does fly these kinds of planes. It will probably not surprise anybody in the audience to know that these planes are designed so that the engine on the right side of the plane and the engine on the left side of the plane operate independently. If the right engine fails or blows up, it has no impact whatsoever on the left engine. If you had a plane where the right engine fails and all of a sudden that means like the left engine fails like lights on a Christmas tree, that would be a really bad design. Would you agree, Mr. Real? It, it certainly sounds like it, doesn't it? Okay, so this is another problem. So what he's talking about here is that not only does the right engine explode, but separately from that and not caused by that, the left engine fails as well because it has to be restarted up right before they hit. So that's another or, problem. Or, the, or the two engines are, like you pointing out, or the two engines are connected and by shutting one engine off, you automatically shut off the other engine. Yeah, right. No, that doesn't happen on these. If that look, if that happens, and there's some pilot out there who can share that that is how this was designed, and we're going to find out exactly what make and model and actually the numbers of the aircraft were before we're done. And I'd better hurry up because I'm taking too much time with this. You're doing great. Okay. So anyway, it goes it goes on. It's, it's mentioned several times or two times in 2018 in different stories. Remember, he's become the president now. And now he's out touring. So all these different places are talking about what he speaks about, like in, oh, he's down south of the border. He's in Argentina in 2019. This story is once again told by him and reported on in August of 2019. In 2019, uh, again, it's reported on. And once more in 2019. Now, this is the important one. This is the really important one, okay? And this is the one I'm going to read really quickly, but it's important because this is in his official biography as president of the church written by guess who? Hmm. Who was in charge of his biography? None hmm, who could that be? Then Deseret books own Sherry yes. Hugh, who has some sort of connection to president Nelson and his wife, Wendy. Yes. Uh, apparently a close connection. I think we can safely say that. I don't want to go too far with that, Mr. Real. They don't want you to either. Here's how she relates this. And you know she's writing this with President Nelson. And he's going to review this before it gets published. All of this is done with his approval, obviously. Yeah. By the way, but it should be noted, this is also safe to say, Wendy Nelson and Sherry Dew are good friends and do hang out. So if President Nelson needed, if the two of them, Sherry Dew and President Nelson, needed to get together and talk about uh, the details of the book to make sure everything is, is all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Wouldn't be too much of a problem. I don't think. No, I don't think so. And so what I mean by it's obviously approved by president Nelson is because, I mean, if someone's writing your biography as the president of the church, you're not going to say, Hey, Sherry, just write any old thing you want and publish it. I don't need to look at it. Right. Duh. Right. So this is important. So here's the story. Okay. On November 12th, 1976, 
date again. Russell Nelson had boarded a commuter plane in Salt Lake City to fly the quick route to St. George, Utah, where he was to give the invocation at the inauguration of, and we get the name, W. Rolf Kerr, K-E-R-R. Might be pronounced Carr, I don't know. Do you find it odd that it's all the way up to 2019 with all the times President Nelson has told this story before some of the real specific details? Of the, again, you and I get this. Too often, LDS church leaders tell fabricated, false, faith-promoting stories, and they often obscure the details. They won't tell you the family, won't tell you the elder's name. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't get the details enough that we can show that the story isn't what it claimed to be. And then it took all the way to 2019 from the 1970s when this story started before we finally get enough details that we might be able to find something. Yeah, and let me push back on that just gently, okay, Bill? Because in 1985, that date was given by Condi. Yeah. Uh, 2003, maybe it was 2003. It was probably 2003, yeah. In 2003, so the second publication of the book, it does give that date of um, November 12th, 1976. See that there? Yep. Okay. But anyway, but we do get the name of the fellow who was being inaugurated as the president of Dixie College. And I'm scrolling down again to where I was. Okay. By the way, why didn't, so somebody asked, why didn't he comfort the lady across the aisle? Why didn't he reach out and put his hand on her and try to calm her down? You know? Well, in the, in the first place, this, this does happen very quickly, apparently. In the second place, he's busy enjoying the movie of his life. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I mean, what a distraction. I'm trying to watch the movie of my life. Yeah. And you're over here screaming. Yeah. Yeah. There's 1970, it's 1976. There's not like there's a, a movie screen on the back seat of the crop duster seat. So he can't watch it. He can't yeah, it's like else. He can't watch, you know, Top Gun or anything. It's like Pee Wee Herman on the phone trying to talk at, in the clubhouse of the Satan's helpers, remember? And they're all being raucous and everything. And he goes, shh, I'm trying to use the phone. <laughs> so that's what I picture President Nelson doing. I'm trying to watch the movie of my life. Okay, so um, where am I? Oh yeah, W. Rolf Kerr as the president of Dixie College. It was a short hop of less than an hour in a small two-engine propeller plane. Okay, break in for just a second, okay? Notice a change there in the time. Now it's a short hop of less than an hour. Originally, it's a two-hour flight. And halfway into that, after an hour, is when the emergency happens. Remember that? Hmm. I can't hear you, so I hope that you're saying yes. No, no, I'm just, I'm just taking my glasses off, and I've got a funny face I'm making that I'm, I'm just the, – the facts are now changing fast and furious. Well, they're changing, and I think I know why. And the reason why is because um, Sherry Dew was telling this story in 2019. So that's what, I mean, how many years later? In yeah. other words, in 2019, things have changed. In 1976, it took two hours to get from Salt Lake City to St. George. 2019, like when I flew down there, it took less than an hour. It takes about an hour to do that, right? Yeah. So what she's doing is apparently intentionally modifying the story to update it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, but it's a little bit of it's a little bit of an anachronism, right? Like that's not that's not really how long the flight took then. Right, it does become an anachronism. It is interesting to me. I, I don't t really find a whole lot of fault with her on that, except it leaves it open to a to an inconsistency with previous yeah. tellings. Yeah. But I think it's very interesting because it's a miracle story, right? Yeah. 
And we see in real time here how miracle stories can be changed in order to make them reflect uh, changes in culture, changes in technology. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I've also got to say this. I called this a miracle story. President Nelson uses the word miraculously a, a lot. If we take this story at face value, which I'm guessing that listeners are probably starting to have questions about, but if we take this story at face value, there's no miracle here, mm -mm. right? There's a, a bad thing that happened on an airplane and a quick thinking pilot who solved the problem and managed to save the plane from catastrophe. In a general sense, you could say, oh, thank goodness, that's a miracle. But there's no miracle that really happens here. Does that make sense? No, the pilot did what pilots do, which is they get training that you and I don't get. You and I are in an airplane and a engine blows up and there's flammable liquid all over the side of the plane and we go into a death spiral. You and I are going to know to turn the other engine back on. You don't. You and I don't know that. But the other guy, the guy that gets professional training, he knows to take the spare engine that's off and turn it back on and go into the spiral, which will extinguish the flames. And just so anybody knows, so I'm sorry, for anybody who might not know, this is what pilots train to do. What pilots train to do over and over is just not fly on uneventful, you know, uh, trips. What they train and train and train to do is to be able to respond to any emergency that can happen midair. And this is one of them. Obviously, one of your engines goes out. What do you do? They get training on that. So well, it's not something that catches them off guard. In, in fact, RFM, the takeoff, the flying, and the landing, again, you can spend a few hours, to be honest. You can spend a few hours in, uh, with, a, with a flight instructor, and you can almost assuredly get those three things down. Mm -hmm. Almost Almost certainly the extensive training is all of the things that could go wrong and how to handle those. That's right. And the, the students that you have to watch out for are the ones who are not interested in taking off and landing, but only learning how to fly. I just talked to somebody two weeks ago who uh, took flight lessons and um, went up in the air with a flight instructor for like a three hour course. Yeah. And um, when she was done, she was able to uh, she said, I could take off a plane, I could land a plane, and certainly I could fly it in the sky. Uh, it really is the, it's the emergency issues that this training comes in handy. Yes, absolutely. So going on with the biography, it was a short hop of less than an hour, anachronism, in a small two-engine propeller plane, only four passenger, passengers were on board. By the way, the number of passengers changes between different recountings. Some have it four, some three, some six. I don't think that's a big deal, just so no. you understand. No. And one account says many, by the way. And obviously many is many. You know, it's a lot more than two and three. But I, I agree with you. It's not a big deal. Right. So there are some discrepancies in this story that I don't think are a big deal that are easily accounted for by just your memory is not exact. So you come up with a number that's close. Um, uh, let's see. The pilot uh, had just announced. Okay. The pilot had just announced that they were halfway to St. George when the engine on the right wing exploded, spewing oil all over the right side of the aircraft and then bursting into flames. This recounting does not have the strange statement by the pilot, we have reached the point of no return, da, 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 just that they're halfway, which it does sound like that's perfectly reasonable for a pilot to say, hey, we're halfway there. Point of no return, more problematic. Uh, bursting into flames, 
In an attempt to douse the flames, the pilot turned the fuel off, causing the small plane to go suddenly into a free fall death spiral. Well, I guess that was a mistake. You turn the fuel off to your right engine, and all of a sudden your plane goes into a free fall death spiral. By the way, she's using the free fall too right now. Yeah, and it should be noted as well, and, and I don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to guess that you get to turn the fuel off to one engine or the other. Yeah. You, in, an, in a serious issue going on in an airplane, you would want to be able to, to make a decision on whether to turn the uh, fuel off to the other engine or not. Those should be separate fuel uh, lines, and you should be able to shut off one or the other. Otherwise, you'd have one problem where you had to shut the fuel off, and you would then create a second problem on the other engine, correct? Exactly. You've got one fuel line that goes to the right engine. You've got another fuel line that goes to the left engine. That makes sense. That yeah. seems rational. It did. So, But unfortunately, he turns off the, uh, the one fuel line, and it makes the whole uh, plane go into a free-fall death spiral, according to this account. The woman across the aisle from Russell began to scream hysterically. But Russell felt calm. It was the most amazing thing, he said. I thought, my wife and I are sealed. Our children are sealed to us. I've honored my covenants. I'll meet my ancestors and go on to a glorious resurrection. Period. End of quote from President Nelson. Oh, my gosh. See, here's the deal. The first story where he says that this incident gave him the final nudge he needed to finally write his life story down. I get that. Okay, that makes sense. But here, it's just like as the story evolves, President Nelson becomes more and more the star of the story. And the story now becomes not just a nudge for him to write down his life story. It becomes a means of showing how righteous he is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, and the woman across the aisleway is a foil of sorts and her being in hysterics serves to highlight in the story, the righteousness of President Nelson. That's the whole reason he's calm and he's not hysterical is because he's very righteous. And because he's very righteous, he's been sealed. He knows that he's going to go on to a glorious resurrection. And that's actually how Sherry Duke quotes him in the biography from 2019. Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, he was, however, impressed with how quickly and comprehensively the mind can work. It's true. She's quoting him again. It's true. Your life does flash before you. I had a bright recollection of all my guilt. No, I'm sorry. That's from Alma. What he says is, I had a bright recollection and perfect remembrance of my whole life. One major thought was that all of the framed awards and honors on my wall, the various clothes I'd worn, tuxedos and uniforms and doctoral robes, didn't mean anything, but he still gets to mention them. He says, what mattered was that I had my garments on. This is a new detail. Okay, he's talked about being sealed in the temple and he's all right with God. And we know that part of that is having your garments on. But this is the first time it's actually mentioned in a recounting of the story. And this is in the 2019 biography by Sherry Dew. What mattered was that I had my garments on. And the funny part when I saw that was I thought that if you had your garments on, you didn't have to worry about dying. Right. And in fact, they're magical. They save you. Of course, now that's another thing that the church has taken back and we no longer have along with planets. And what was there was another thing, too. Oh, the Garden of Eden and being in Missouri. Uh, that's yes. gone as well. So as doctrines in Mormonism are taken away, magical garments have vanished, too. And and so at this point, it doesn't really matter if you're on a death spiral airplane flight or not. Garments aren't going to do you any good other than remind you of your covenants 
in the covenant path that you've been on your whole life. Right. They're no longer a protection. They're a symbol of righteousness. Yeah. So what mattered was that I had my garments on and had been faithful to the covenants I had made in the temple. Boy, I wish I could be like President Nelson. Uh, by the way, I, another little note. <laughs> go ahead. Another little note is that there is only a, a limited number of people on this airplane. President Nelson, who is a general authority at the time, is making the trip from Salt Lake City to, to St. George. Almost certainly, everyone else on that airplane is part of this entourage. Right. This woman who's across the aisle, he probably knows who she is. Yeah. Exactly. It's not It's not definite, but probably. I would think so. Yeah. If you were on that flight, reach out to us. We'd like to talk to you. Yes. <laughs> We'd love to talk to you. So it goes on. And once again, I, I keep saying I'm going to go quick, and I don't. What mattered was that I had my garments on, had been faithful to the covenants I'd made in the temple. I knew I was going to die, but I knew I would be fine. Yeah. Miraculously, the free fall extinguished the fire, and in the nick of time, the pilot was able to start the left engine. Once again, there we have the left engine stopping for some reason. Regained control of the plane and guided to an emergency landing in a farmer's field not far from, new fact, Delta, Utah. Okay? Mm, look at that. Emergency landing in a farmer's field not far from Delta, Utah. Everyone walked away from the incident unharmed. Another plane was dispatched, and Russell made it to St. George in time to give the invocation period. End of that story. From Sherry Dew. Now, when I read this the first time, I thought, that's strange. Another plane was dispatched. Well, if they're in a farmer's field, where is this new plane that's going to pick them up going to land? Because mm -hmm. it's not going to land in the farmer's field. You only do that in an emergency, right? Right. So that part was not exactly explained. So I was left to think, well, did the, they catch a bus or something to some other airport? And if there's some other airport, why are they landing in a farmer's field? That part starts to get kind of fuzzy with a lot of question marks, but we'll get to those again. Okay, so now, now we understand all this stuff. Now let's get to fact checking of the story. Beyond and above what we've already commented on, there is a, a website or a message board that I've mentioned before called discussmormonism.com. Some of the best, brightest thinkers in Mormonism are over there. Yeah. And back in March of this year, shortly after this video came out, um, they started a thread on that and started asking some questions about it and wondering if they would be able to maybe corroborate this story by independent uh, details or documents. And what happened was, is that they, they went to um, newspapers. They couldn't find any record of it. Newspapers in the area, because what he's describing is something that would definitely be newsworthy, especially in a small Utah town in southern Utah, right? And besides that, wouldn't there, I'm just asking, wouldn't there be like, aren't there like rules and laws in governances around how these kinds of uh, events are handled? Yes, there are. And, and there, part of the problem was that it was so long ago that if this were classified as an emergency, then it should show up in NTSB records. And people were looking at the NTSB records, the National Traffic Safety Board records but they were a bit spotty. There wasn't anything they could come up with. What they did was they went out through all these different sources for the first 74 pages, 74 pages of this thread over at discussmormonism.com and they couldn't find anything that corroborated it. So they were really left with an absence of evidence. It looked like 
that was funny because such an emergency should have showed up in the NTSB records or in newspapers or something. There was nothing. So it was a case where they were just looking at an absence of evidence where they would expect to find some evidence. It was kind of like archaeology in um, of the Book of Mormon in the New World. There's an absence of evidence, right? But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Maybe they just can't find the evidence that shows that it did. Right. Okay, so that thread went on for 74 pages in that vein until um, July 6, 2021. So that's recent. That's this month. And all of a sudden, on page 74 of this thread, an anonymous poster who is new to the board suddenly brings up some information that this poster found. And this is important. This is what the rest of tonight's show will be about. He says, I found this in the Civil Aeronautics Board reports. That's the CAB report, Civil Aeronautics Board. Quote, second incidents. Now, by the way, this involves three airplane-related problems. Between, let me see here. It was basically between October and November of 1976. I'll get those dates here in a second, okay? Uh, but there were three incidents that happened here. The second incident, however, is the one that almost certainly is this flight. He actually basically found the flight that President Nelson is talking about because the first incident happened too early. And there's a lot of other details that don't match up with President Nelson's story. The third incident happened uh, after the inauguration on November 12, 1976. That doesn't match. And there are other details that don't match either, like places that they were traveling to, that there might only be one engine on the plane. But the second incident on November 11, 1976, is the jackpot. Okay, second incident occurred November 11th, 1976. That's the day before the inauguration, by the way. Uh, involving Piper PA31 in 74985. That's where I'm saying we actually have the number of the aircraft. Pilot experienced rough engine on scheduled flight between Salt Lake City and St. George. Matching, right? Three passengers on board, give or take. Engine was feathered and precautionary landing made at Delta, Utah. Does that name sound familiar, Delta? Isn't that where Sherry Dew said he landed in a farmer's field? But this says precautionary landing made at Delta, Utah, per instructions in company manual. Now, when this landing was made on who November 11th. Who had time to consult the manual? Oh, it wasn't that I was being consulted. There's all this stuff that's going on here. And let me just read through it and then I'll go back and I'll tell you what Dr. W, who is a pilot who posts on this Mormon, discuss Mormonism board, yeah. has said. Okay. And Dr. Moore is another guy who's been doing an awful lot of research. And I want to mention both of them because they have done yeoman's work in digging up this stuff, as well as this anonymous individual who actually found this entry. Okay. So in, um, engine was feathered. And by the way, what that means is you take the, the props. And you know how they, they're sideways to the wind with a little bit of an angle? Feathering them means that on the engine that's not working, you take the propeller blades and you move them directly forward so that there's no drag. Okay, that's what feathering is. I didn't know. Dr. W, the pilot, was the one who told me that. Engine was feathered and precautionary landing. By the way, a precautionary landing is not an emergency landing. That's a big deal. 
Because if you're on fire, it whether you put the fire out or not, it's no longer a precaution, precautionary landing. Right. A precautionary landing means you could have got he could have gone on to St. George. <laughs> it's about yeah. to get good, isn't it? Yes. But as a precaution, let's just go ahead and put it down at the Delta Municipal Airport. Wait, well, hold on a minute. This wasn't a farmer's field. Uh, no, we'll get to that, I think. Okay. <laughs> there happens to be a municipal airport in Delta, Utah. And I looked it up this morning or this afternoon and found out that it has been open and in operation since 1943. Nice. So, yeah, it was definitely there and uh, open for business, ready to have a precautionary, not an emergency landing made. So engine was feathered and precautionary landing made at Delta, Utah, per instructions and company manual. When it says per instructions and company manual, that's what it means is it could have gone on. But it says, look, if we've got an engine out, you know, then we, we should probably put it down at the closest available airport just as a precaution, hence the term precautionary landing. As a result of this occurrence, as a result of occurrence, SkyWest, okay, SkyWest, change maintenance procedures by checking torque studs at each 100 hour inspection. Okay, uh, this is really just one paragraph. I'm just going through it. I just want everybody to know it's not gonna go on forever here. All right, SkyWest was the airline that flew between St. George and Salt Lake City and Salt Lake City and St. George. Further investigation by the smart people over at the Mormon Discussions Board, excuse me, Discuss Mormonism board. I apologize. They changed their name relatively yeah. recently and I keep going back to the old Mormon, but they've only done it once. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, blah, blah, blah. Uh, as a result of the current, by the way, notice after that hundred hour inspection, what's that next sentence? Oh, hang on a second. Cause I will, I will get to that. I'll <laughs> even let you read that. But uh, sky West sky West is the only airline that flew in 1976 between, it was the only airline flying between uh, Salt Lake and St. George. Hmm. So again, it's all, all these fingers are pointing toward this November 11th, 1976 incident as being the correct one. Yeah. It's not like there were other airlines out there. It could have been, no, this is the only game in town. In and just know, at the very top of the very top of the article, it does say a different date of some other uh, event. Notice the fourth line down, second incident occurred. So just, I just want to reiterate that. I don't want people to think we pulled something that's got the wrong date to it. It is the day before a present the inauguration as it happened, and all the details that are not part of the miracle story are lining up. Right. So it actually, if this is correct, uh, it actually the flight was on November 11th, 1976, the day before the inauguration. Right. And I think that it's understandable that uh, President Nelson in recalling it could have uh, misrecollected uh, that it was on the day of the inauguration. Why, why wouldn't he miss something else? How, <laughs> however, it makes it a lot less miraculous to be flying out the day before the inauguration and maybe spending the night at the state president's house, you know, right? Like GAs do. Yeah. And then attending the inauguration the following day. It's it's more miraculous if you're flying out on the same day of the inauguration. And you barely. And all, yes, and all this stuff happens, but you're still able to make it to the inauguration on time. It's like a song out of uh, My Fair Lady. Yeah. But this is actually the day before. So his making it in time, less miraculous. Okay. Man. So all the, all the changes do tend to make it more miraculous. So 
once again, I'll say as a result of occurrence, SkyWest changed maintenance procedures by checking the torque studs at each 100 hour inspection. So you got to check the torque studs more frequently to make sure this doesn't happen where they had a rough engine. Okay. Now you want to read the next four word sentence in this report, Mr. Real? Yeah. No damage to aircraft. Boing. Huh. Yeah. That's from the Civil Aeronautics Board report about this incident. Yeah. No damage to aircraft. There's no damage to the right engine. There's no damage. There's there's no fuel. There's no flaming fire. There's no all of this stuff that is described by President Nelson. There's no damage to the aircraft. And there's no injuries to crew or passengers. That would be consistent with President Nelson's story as well. And now that's the end of the quote from that uh, the relevant quote from the Civil Aeronautics Board report. By the way, do we have a link to that? Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll copy it and I will put it into the chat for all of this, so everybody else can. Uh... So everybody knows this is a massive tome, and you have to go to page one zero nine zero. Yeah. To find this paragraph. Yeah, page ten ninety. So I really want to give credit to the the person who's still anonymous who found this. Yeah, and, and this should exist. If if an airplane has an incident in the sky, there are records that are mandatory to be kept. And um, and I know somebody's going to say, well, maybe this isn't the flight. Well, you, you're telling me you have another flight going from Salt Lake City to St. George one day later that also has issues that all of these other details seem to matter. Come on. Like, this is it. it no, and the whole point of this report is to talk about problems with aircraft and yeah. to document them yeah. by the way i believe this report was written in was it 1979 or something in other words it's only a few years later that they're writing this report while all this information is still fresh yeah. so and so that everybody knows I, I made this note here the first flight during this time period it was between october 17 1976 and november 24th 1976 that was the time span they're looking at they have three flights with problems October 17th was the first one, obviously way too early. November 24th was the third one, obviously way too late because the inauguration is on November 12th. Yeah. And also there's all these other details, like I mentioned before, they're flying from wrong locations to different locations for different purposes, different engine uh, configuration, all those kind of things that lead us to understand that the first and the third are not the right one. It is the yeah. November 11th flight because what you'd also be saying is that you've got three flights. The whole purpose of this is to document uh, problems with airplanes, you know, try and keep it from happening in the future. It's a good idea. And what you're saying is you've got these three documented, and then you have a fourth one that happens in the middle of these three, the day after the second one, which is worse by far, if we go with President Nelson's description, than any of the other three. And somehow they don't mention that one. Yeah, it it should be noted, right? Like the FFA again has these rules. So if an engine failed in the sky and, and there that's an issue, it would have to be reported. If an engine exploded, it would have to be reported. If a, if a plane caught on fire, it would have to be reported. If the, uh, if the plane had to do an emergency landing in a field somewhere that would have to be reported. And so my point is that the burden of proof at this point, would be on the church or somebody else defending it to give us the FFA report for the incident that is not this one, but it was the one that President Nelson was on. 
and I can guarantee that we'll be waiting a while. <laughs> well, actually, I hope that someone can come up with that documentation because I would hate to think that President Nelson is making all of this up. That would be, yeah, I mean, I, I, especially after, you know, us all learning that uh, Paul H. Dunn made things up and Elder Holland makes things up and uh, lots of other church leaders make things up. So after this individual brought up the CAB report that I just read, here's what Dr. W, the pilot, uh, experienced pilot, commented on on the Discuss Mormonism board. If I haven't given enough plugs for that board, I'll keep mentioning it. It is a great, by the way, I participated there over the years. It's a great discussion board. If you want smart people dissecting the issues and not letting bullshit be okay, that board is the place you want to be. It's kind of the opposite of the Mormon dialogue and discussion board. Ooh, nice slam. And I agree. So uh, Dr. W says this, he says, shutting down a rough running engine, feathering the prop and making a precautionary landing at an alternate airport, according to company policy, in a lightly loaded twin aircraft is hardly worth mentioning unless it made Nelson late for his appointment, which it apparently did not. It is certainly a far cry from death spiral dive in an aircraft engulfed in flames with hysterical female on board and both engines out. <laughs> right. I love the way he just crams all that in. Uh, then he says, what about the right engine bursting open and catching fire? The aircraft engulfed in flames, the left engine failure, the death spiral dive, the miraculous left engine restart. And as Dr. Moore asked, that's the other person I talked about who was doing a lot of investigation. And as Dr. Moore asked, what about landing the plane in a farmer's field? Compared to what was actually reported, Nelson's story is not correct. Actually, Dr. W said, Nelson's story is a lie. I try and avoid that word. But uh, it does seem to have a number of issues with the story. So. Let me go on to Dr. Moore now from July 7th. Uh, he's the one who found out that at the time, commercial airline records show SkyWest was the only carrier with service between Salt Lake City and St. George. Okay, mm -hmm. that's an important detail. Now, he then asked a number of questions. Um, excuse me. Um, he says, so what does match with Nelson's story? The date. November 11th, which is one day prior to a scheduled invocation at Dixie, the flight plan, Salt Lake City to St. George, the single engine failure, rough engine in the CAB report, the unplanned wait, land. Wait, doesn't, rough, doesn't rough engine mean that it still is running? It's just not perfect. Right. It's running rough because of the problem with the studs, right? I think it was the studs. Is that what they said? They needed to check every 100 hours. Which would explain why you only need to make a precautionary landing. Yes. Hmm. It's a studs checking the torque studs. Okay. So in other words, it's still running. It's just running rough. Yeah. The pilot made the decision to stop the engine by cutting the fuel to the engine. So what? he knew what he was doing when he did it. And he did that in order to keep this, uh, what was happening, the rough engine from getting worse. Right. Yeah. And potentially leading to a problem like what it is that president Nelson described, but he shuts off the engine and he's going to be telling everybody about it. Dr. W mentions this. And of course, it's only common sense. He's going to be telling everybody in the plane what he's doing before he does it. Don't worry. We're fine. We got the right engine is having some roughness to it. I'm going to be turning off the right engine. I'm going to keep the left engine going. Everything's fine. And all I'm going to be doing is shutting that off. Uh, we're probably not going to lose any altitude. If we do, it'll just be a little bit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to yaw the plane. Okay. Just a little bit. 
So we can continue flying straight, but I'm just gonna angle it a little bit. Yaw is the term that Dr. W uses. I think that's the technical term so that we keep going straight with the left engine. And that's why they could have kept going all the way to St. George, but they made the precautionary landing at the Delta Municipal Airport. Right. So it wasn't an emergency landing in a farmer's field, at least apparently not. Okay, um, now let me go down here, there. Okay, he says, uh, what does, this is Dr. Moore, what does, what does match with Nelson's story? The date, the flight plan, the single engine failure, rough engine, the unplanned landing in Delta, Utah, the plurality of passengers besides President Nelson, and no injuries. All of this information suggests that this is the scary flight Nelson has referred to on many occasions. So he's talking about all these connections that President Nelson's story does have with this report of the November 11th, 1976 flight. So that's how it links up. Where it is different is basically in all the scary stuff. Right. Anything miraculous is quickly vanishing right before our eyes. Yes, he asked a few questions of Dr. W, the pilot. One of the questions was, is it possible with this description for there to have been an engine fire? What is the failure being described, i.e. the rough engine, right? And the answer from the pilot, Dr. Moore's, as described in the report, there was no fire. No, and, and no damage to the plane, which as uh, if any of us would understand, if a engine blew up and there was oil and gas all over the side of the plane and the lady on the aisle who's panicking has fire outside of her window. Remember, she was the closest one to it. Mm -hmm. um, and they did the death spiral to put out the fire. Then there would certainly be at the very minimum some burn uh, marks on that airplane, right? There'd be something. Right. Smoke damage, something. But there was no damage, according to the CAB report, the Civil Aeronautics Board report. And Dr. W goes on to say the fact that there was a precautionary landing and not an emergency landing, which is a huge distinction. He says that also indicates no fire. OK. Yeah. Um, he also goes on to say there would have been no smoke. So not only no fire, no smoke. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's <laughs> no fire, apparently in this instance, there's probably no smoke either. And just FYI, I put a picture of the plane up on the screen. I, I wanted folks to see that unless you were going to reveal that later and I should take it back off real quick. No, it's great. Okay, Go cool. ahead and leave it up there. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm skipping a few things, trying to get to the main stuff. He also adds, uh, this is the pilot, Dr. Moore. There was no rapid descent. Most likely passengers would feel a slight yaw from asymmetrical thrust. And there would have likely there would have likely been a gentle descent as the crew shut down and secured the rough engine. It's unlikely that there would have been much of a nose down change in pitch. There would have been a change in the sound of the engines as one shut down and the other increased power, but no rapid descent. And of course, this is miles away from a death spiral. Mm. Remember, he says the engine that was shut down had not failed. This is something you mentioned, Bill. It had not failed. It was still providing thrust when they decided to shut it down. And um, then the question was, would the pilot have had a moment to notify passengers or would this brief descent have happened suddenly? And the answer from the expert was, this was not an emergency and nothing would have happened suddenly. Before starting the shutdown procedure, the captain would have informed the passengers that one of the engines was running a bit rough and they had decided to shut it down as a precaution. He would have reminded the passengers that they had a perfectly good engine on the other wing and that the aircraft was designed to fly safely on one engine. But apparently none of that 
survived into President Nelson's recounting of the story any of the times he's told it. Hmm. All right. And then Dr. Moore says, it seems like for the first time we have positive evidentiary basis to show that uh, President Nelson embellished almost everything about the incident. And Dr. W, the pilot says, plus adding a few flourishes of his own, like the spiraling death dive with flames engulfing the aircraft. <laughs> okay. Um, by the way, it should be noted that if the engine did something where just the engine had a little bit of fire coming out of it, turning off the fuel line to that engine would have then cut off the fire. And the only thing that explains a fire continuing and hence we need to do this death spiral is that there is flammable material that came out of an explosion that did get on the airplane. So there are some people in the comments saying like, maybe there was a fire just in the little engine, but that would necessitate a completely different set of steps in the process to eliminate that and simply turning off the fuel probably almost mm -hmm. assuredly would have done it. Right. And I have tried to, as I've been investigating this, I've tried to push back on every point right. and say, well, maybe this or maybe that or maybe something right. else. And uh, what I end up finding out is that what I have to do is I have to twist myself into a pretzel in order to preserve the credibility of President Nelson. Yeah. And I stopped doing that when I left Fair Mormon. Ah, yeah. Okay. Just a couple more things. Uh, the November 11th plane. Okay investigations revealed could have continued on to St. George or returned to Salt Lake City, but landed at the nearest airport as a precautionary measure, not in the field or off airport. In fact, the same reports note, remember those two other uh, incidents in October and November, the first and the third. In fact, the same reports note that the two other SkyWest engine failures occurring between October to November of 1976 were single engine planes. Okay, those were single. Once again, this is a double engine plane. So it's another reason to know those weren't the right ones. But they specifically noted that those two flights landed off airport. So there's an expression that's used if you're landing somewhere other than an airport, like in a farmer's field, it's off airport. For the first and the third, that's noted, but not for this one, not for the November 11th, 1976 one, which apparently landed at the airport in Delta, not in a farmer's field in Delta. Right. Okay. So, my goodness, we're running so long, but that's okay. I'm almost at the end. No, I like it. Each of the incidents involved the failure of the engine. Two of the three incidents involved single engine aircraft of the type which SkyWest operates in charter service, not in scheduled commuter operations. Okay, now pay attention to this. The third engine malfunction, that's the one we're talking about, the November 11th one. It's a second chronologically. It's just put that way here. The November 11th engine malfunction occurred on a twin engine Navajo. That's the name of the plane being operated in scheduled commuter operations. Although the aircraft could have continued to its destination or the originating station on one engine in accordance with the company's operations manual, the pilot made a precautionary landing at the nearest airport. By the way, I believe this is also from the CAB report. All right. Once again, there were no injuries to any person, property, or the aircraft as a result of the unfortunate coincidence of these three unrelated engine malfunctions within a short period of time. The incidents in question were investigated in depth by the FAA as well as the two engine manufacturers. Okay. So the FAA did an in-depth investigation 
of this November 11th engine malfunction. And it's on the basis of that, that this CAB report is put together that talks about there was no damage to the plane. So this is an in-depth investigation by the FAA. It's not just something that somebody threw together based on what somebody told them. Okay, let's see here. I wanna go once again to Dr. W. This is gonna be his last comment. The comment, um, Assume that the pilot may have momentarily lost control of the aircraft when the right engine exploded. So somebody had made that comment. This is Dr. W responding to that. The right engine did not explode. In fact, the record shows the right engine was shut down as a precaution, resulting in a precautionary landing at the nearest airport. There was no spin or even entry into a spin, let alone a death spiral dive. There was no loss of the second engine that required the miraculous restart he described. There was no explosion. There was no fire. There was no landing in a farmer's field. There was no damage to the aircraft or injuries to the passengers or crew. Russell M. Nelson's story is a fabrication, except he used the L word. In its numerous versions, it is numerous fabrications. And once again, he used the L word. So the main embellishments of the story have to do with the... Um, if we were to put these down in a, a brief list, the main embellishments to the story, which appear to have been contradicted by what actually happened, is that the, um, the pilot never said, we've reached the point of no return. We've gone over that. Unless the pilot happened to be John Wayne, I don't know. The next thing is there was no engine explosion. There's no engine fire. There's no free fall. There's no spiral nosedive. There's no left engine failure. Hence, no need to start it up again right before impact. There's no emergency landing. It was a precautionary landing by the book, could have gone on to St. George, and there's no landing in a farmer's field in Delta. Instead, it was at the airport in Delta, the municipal airport of Delta. I am, uh, I'm not surprised. Um, I've come to expect this kind of thing. Have you? Yeah. Um, I think it's why we have to move to a place where we need faith not to be healed. I think you're right. And by the way, if this was the first story that President Nelson had told that had problems with fact checking, I would be probably more inclined to give him more of a benefit of a doubt. But the fact is, he's got three really, really big Pinocchio stories before this. And oh. I covered those in Radio Free Morning. You did. You uh, it's called... Yeah, it was two years ago. I went back and re-listened to it so I could refresh my memory on it. that episode? Uh, the Miracle Making of President Nelson. So I'll share that in the links too. Oh, great. Thank you. Because it covers um, the, the 2015 revelation where in January of 2016, he made up a whopper of a story about how it was that revelation was received, which was subsequently shown to be not accurate. The second one was what I call the incident at Mozambique, Right. And uh, where he's over there and they get robbed and that story ends up getting blown be out beyond all proportion to the point where finally, you know, angels come down and rescue President Nelson from being shot in the head by the robbers and rescue Wendy from being kidnapped. Yeah. And by the way, I told you this week, I talked to somebody just, a, I don't know, whatever it was a week ago, because I think I talked to you about three or four days ago on this. Uh, the person said I was on my mission at that time in um what's the name of the, the the place again mozambique mozambique and uh, he said yeah i mean we were there when it happened and this whole idea of guns in someone's face and all the other details that don't seem to make that, that wasn't part of the story then 
No, it's been uh, elaborated over time in order to make it more miraculous. Right. And the third one was what I call the story of the, the, the lady in the hat. And that was a story that was completely manufactured by President Nelson. It was actually in the book that was published in 2019, right before it went to publication. LDS Living posted an excerpt and it contained that story, the lady in the hat mm. and the daughter and the granddaughter of that lady contacted Deseret Book and said, hey, this didn't happen. Everything miraculous about it didn't happen. Everything's wrong with it. And, and so they, they, they retracted it. Hmm. It was just in time. They pulled the entire story out of the book, the same book in which the flight of death story appears. Huh. So unfortunately, that's been two years ago. So I don't know what they're going to do now when they find out that this flight of death story is also equally as embellished as the lady in the hat story. We'll huh. have to see. So but what like, you're saying is that President Nelson has a pattern of telling stories that aren't true. Um, I would say that they're highly embellished. Okay. Is that, is that fair enough? Um, I'm going to go with lying. I, I, you know, when you withhold, I think the gospel principles manual, which I remember taking as a investigator in the church in the gospel principles class, it was if you withhold any information that would, uh, make the story more truthful or the event or the thing you're saying more truthful. That mm -hmm. is also a form of lying. Yeah. If you take the facts and change them to be something other than what they are, that's a form of lying. I don't know. Right. Leading a person to believe something that's not true is, is classified in there as a form of lying. And I think we'd mm -hmm. all probably agree with that. It is. Even huh. if what you say is not specifically a lie. And so we've got all these situations where President Nelson continues to apparently embellish incidents. The, the incidents actually happened. The kernel of the incident happened. But then over time, it gets blown out of proportion. And the miraculousness of what happens always tends to flow one way. And that's toward demonstrating how righteous President Nelson is. They yeah. always end up having him as the star, the one who is favored, the one who is protected, and the one who is righteous. You know who the red suit is. The red suit is that lady across the aisle. The red suit. The Star Trek. The uh, the people wearing the red uniforms. Uhura. No, well, just I'm just saying that in Star Trek, the whoever wears the red uniforms, they're expendable. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right. And uh, and the lady across the aisle is the red suit. She doesn't really matter. Just her hysteria is to prove a point about how calm he is. He is the juxtaposition to her panic. Yeah. I get it now. I get it now. And this is a dangerous game to be playing, President Nelson. When you are the president of a church that is based entirely on the idea that your founding prophet had some miraculous stories that happened to him, and he told these stories, right? And we have to believe him that what he's recounting, like the first vision, actually happened the way he's recounting it. You don't want to be in a position where you are being caught with your britches down, embellishing stories and adding facts to make them more miraculous. Because it's a short trip to the candy shop to say, if you're doing it, President Nelson, why should I think that Joseph Smith did not do the same thing? That's why it was so, that's why it's so dangerous for him to do it. It's why it's so, it was so dangerous for Paul H. Dunn to yeah. do it. But apparently Paul H. Dunn is alive and well, at least in spirit, in the top echelons of the LDS. Let it go for break. Well, okay, I'm sorry.
I will try and give him a break. I didn't say anything bad about it. I'm just saying if, if President Nelson's doing it, then why should we think that, that Joseph Smith wasn't doing the same thing? We need to have leaders who are above board in the way they recount incidents because yeah. if you get caught, then it undermines the entire church, not just President Nelson, the entire church itself. And if the thing you're that saying, you're saying if we find leaders lying from Nelson to Holland to Dunn to, you know, let's just keep going all the way back, then it calls into question the integrity of all of them, including the founder, Joseph Smith Jr. Right. Huh. If one can do it, if you find one person doing it, then it's natural to think that maybe another one did. And now we've got at least two, if not more, with uh, Elder um, Paul H. Dunn and now President Nelson. And President Nelson really seems to have a proclivity for this. But re what really surprised me was that in September of 2019, when President Nelson was speaking on another subject, he did talk about something important, and that is what prophets say. And what he said there was that a prophet always tells the truth. Do you have that clip, Bill? We'll huh. end with that. It's precisely because we do care deeply about all of God's children that we proclaim his truth. We may not always tell people what they want to hear. Prophets are rarely popular. But we will always teach the truth. Boom. There you go. President Nelson, prophets always teach the truth. So what we're left with after this story and the other ones you've, you've gone into, which I would encourage people to go back and listen to that episode, Radio Free Mormon number 84, uh, the miracle making of President Nelson. Um, what you're saying is either prophet, either President Nelson isn't a prophet or prophets don't tell the truth, right? Like that's. It gets very sticky. And I think that ultimately, and I, I said this, it's so funny because I said this back two years ago in the podcast. And when I listened to it, I thought, oh, I said that then too. The question comes down not to whether Russell M. Nelson is a prophet of God. The question comes down to whether you would buy a used car from this man. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't. No, or Elder Ballard. No, Elder Ballard or Elder Holland or Elder Oaks. I mean, what was the, uh, I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those, I think would be the ones we avoid. <laughs> Elder Ballard was the car salesman in another yeah. life. That's why I brought him up. You know that. Yeah, there's a there's a little scandal with them and him and his dad and giving out free cars to the GAs, and then they did a business venture buying a, a, a building, and it it failed miserably, and the LDS church came in and bailed out Elder Ballard and his dad and bought the building. They don't really use it for anything. It's never made money for them, but it was a I scratch your back, you scratch mine, and uh, we seem to find some of those. Clinton Cook in the hospital, President Monson's son who – masturbates and sexually pursues some woman against her own consent and uh, ends up getting hired by Curtin and McConkie, Thomas, uh, uh, Thomas Monson Jr. So the church has a history of this kind of deceptiveness and egregious behavior and covering it all up. And this story on the plane is just one more. Yep, we are. We've gone from stories on the planes to story on a plane. Yeah, <laughs> little guy. pioneer reference. We got to get some phone calls in here. I've gone hopelessly long. I hope it was worth it. I thought that it deserved a little bit of detail. 
so that the audience could understand the, the problematic nature and why it is that it's problematic based upon the facts as best as we could collect those. And when I say we, I mean they. I mean <laughs> Dr. W and uh, Dr. Moore, especially, and then the anonymous fellow who I don't know, he just had some like letters and numbers on his, uh, his, his screen name. And he just appeared to post that and then he disappeared. Yeah, if you're out there and you're a pilot, you want to you want to make a comment here. If you uh, if if you have some question to ask or something to note, uh, but our first call is coming in. I'll let you talk for just a second, RFM. And good because this has the phone number is four three five two hundred three four seven eight or four three five two hundred fist. Okay, there we go. I'm excited to hear this phone call. I'm looking forward to hearing any second. Yeah. Here we go. Our our first call. It's Roger. No, it's not Roger. I'm just kidding. It is James. James, you are on the line with Mormonism Live. You're on with RFM and Bill Real. Uh, tell us what you think about this plane story. You know, it's it's interesting that this came up tonight because I've I've actually gone back and listened to a lot of previous episodes, specifically the gospel topic essays. And what apologists a lot of times they do they they focus on one point and one story, and they're able to explain that one point and that one story away. What I've come to a realization, when you start putting all of the explanations together, all of a sudden, I mean, it's, it's a house of falling cars. It, it falls apart. It's yeah. it, one story takes on another story. Uh, specifically, it was between polygamy and blacks in the priesthood. The apologist with polygamy will say, well, Brigham Young didn't want to do it. It was really hard for him to do it, but he followed the Lord. But blacks in the priesthood, the Lord couldn't be bothered to solve that problem. Right. You know? Yeah. Anyway, so I, think agree. I think the true miracle of this story is that Russell and Nelson continues to get away with it. That's the real miraculous part of the story. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if the church does anything here to kind of obscure these stories. Now that it's been exposed is certainly not happening the way it was laid out in about 12 different sources. So two things. Uh, yeah, first I, off, I hope. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm it's sorry. It's going to be silently swept away like everything else, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to let you. Members, go ahead, caller. You're good. I was just going to say the believing members won't won't believe the that that it was a lie, and the people who believe it is a lie, no one listens to us anyway. So yeah. it's, it's just going to go yeah. by the wayside, unfortunately. Well, thank you, caller. I appreciate the phone call. Yep. Thank you. Um, really quick, RFM. The, I want to just talk about something he said, which is. Um, He's 100% right, but it goes bigger than that. The, the apologist will use a reconciliation strategy to solve problem A, but that reconciliation strategy will be contradictory to the truth claims of the church in... Um, I'm going to go back to the phone call in just a second. Um, that, that reconciliation strategy or explanation would also hurt faith in some other issue. So when they get to the other issue, they get very inconsistent and they like, as, as the caller said, they like to keep distance between all these issues. They don't want you taking the 20,000 foot view. They instead want you to only deal with one issue at a time. Here's issue A. Here's our answer for issue A. Um, so for instance, in some situations, a tight translation of the Book of Mormon is helpful. So let's go with the Book of Mormon might have been a tight translation. Issue B um, we need now a loose translation. So now our reconciliation is don't don't hold Joseph Smith to having a tight translation. It, it must have been a loose translation, right? And that's when we have cure and kunams and all that kind of stuff. 
And so Joseph can have some other word for some other thing uh, or horse for taper, right? And, and so these strategies, when you, as the caller points out, when you collect them all together and go, I'm going to hold you consistent. When you're answering problem A and you give this solution, that solution now also has to be consistently used as we, as we dive into similar kinds of issues. And apologists want nothing to do with that. Right. So in other words, if you use the, the loose translation where it helps you, then that solves that problem. Okay, put that over here. Now we've got this problem. Okay, well, we'll use a tight translation theory over here. So that solves that problem. And that takes care of that situation. The problem is, is now when you sit back and you look at both of those together and you say, wait a second, it's not both a tight translation and a loose translation at the same time. And that's where it starts blowing up. And I would say a couple things now about, I think it was James, and I'm sorry, I just want to say two things. First off, I think if you think this is important, okay, tonight's podcast, please share it with as many people as you can, as you feel safe sharing it with, but please share it with as many people as you can so it doesn't, you know, die in obscurity here, but that as many people can find out about this as possible. The second thing is, if you think this is important, uh, please contribute. And I'll let Bill talk about how you can contribute because I always forget the directions of how to do that. The third thing of the two things I was going to mention, the third thing is I would hope, I would hope that apologists would not say that it was hard for Brigham Young to practice polygamy. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go there if I was an apologist. Yeah, I might rephrase that. Moment. All right. So call, caller number two, this is Paul. Paul, you are on Mormonism Live um, with RFM and Bill Real. What do you think about this, uh, this death spiral and engine explosion and flames on the plane? I mean, I've, uh, I think it's really interesting. And I think like you guys brought up, it, it, it's a pattern that obviously has been going on. And there's lots of different of these types of stories or other types of stories. And I think what ends up getting lost and what I've noticed living in kind of the Wasatch Front area, that unless something like this kind of hits the news, like either the Trib picks it up or KUTV, one of those outlets that seems to want to kind of grind against the church sometimes, um, that it just kind of falls by the wayside. But those stories, when they do get picked up, if there's enough data that somebody there will, will kind of report on something like this and show, hey, there's a, there's a disconnect here, um, that there's not going to be a comment by the church, but when they do, the church will eventually comment. You'll eventually see the Des News pick it up and somehow, you know, but it has to be, I've seen that kind of drumbeat just living here until you get some sort of a response. So I'll, I'll hang up and listen, but I, I'm just wondering if you think that there's any newsworthy nature to this thing because of all the investigation that, that RFM did. Anyway, I'll, I'll hang up now and listen. Yeah. Do you think RFM that the church will address this in any way um, and admit oh. that there's some issue or try to obfuscate or shade it over some other way to make it sound good? They will ignore it until they feel they have to respond. So I agree with the, um, the caller there, Paul, by the way, I do want to correct something that Paul said, not my research, not my research. If I see further than others, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants and I'm not even sure I see further than others, but I sure am borrowing from greater minds and better researchers than I am. Are you, are you ready for the next uh, caller, RFM? Ready. All right. This is Lance. Lance, you are on the phone with Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. Uh, what do you think about President Nelson and his, uh, it seems like it's a pattern at this point of telling stories differently than they actually happened. 
Yeah, of course. This seems to be the MO that these guys uh, live by. I have a question for, uh, for you fellas. Did any of the local newspapers in the area pick up the story of a church official crash landing in a, in a farmer's field or make an emergency landing? Cause it seems like maybe it would have been published. Yeah. I'll, I'll hang up and we'll respond to that. That's not just a zero. It's a double zero. And that's what the first 74 pages of this thread that started in March go into. They're looking at all the newspapers and, and from the time period and from these locations thinking if it happened as dramatically as president Nelson said it would, it must show up somewhere for crying out loud. Absolute zero. There's no mention of it in any of the sources. And these people really scoured to try and find something. They could find absolutely nothing. And that's why it was an argument from uh, the absence of evidence, an argument from silence up until page 74, which is where the anonymous guy drops in the CAB report. And that blew it all open. Pardon the use of that phrase. And now Bill Breel is talking to someone who's the next caller on the show. Who do you so, have, Bill? Well, just a quick note. There wouldn't be any reason for a newspaper report if the other, if neither engine really ever went out. And if the airplane simply made a precautionary landing at the Delta airport, I don't see why that would even make the news anyway, which a, explains, explains the data way better. It's a non-story. Do you ever get the feeling that the, the general authorities, at least some of them, or like in a competition to see who can come up with the most miraculous story. And get away with it. Well, yeah, I mean, I obviously want to get away with it, but it's like there's this competition. It's not all of them, but some of them, you know, it's like, you know, I've got great stories too. And if I don't have one, I'm going to, I'm going to create one so I can it be in the competition. Yeah, give, give us a moment, Lance. So it, it's right, even Lance. gotten to the point, RFM, that there is a miracle story told by some 70 in a recent talk where a gnat lands <clears throat> near him and he squashes the gnat. And then he, he's sad that the gnat died. So he says a little prayer <clears throat> and the gnat comes back to life. <laughs> this is where we're at. We're at the point where gnats being uh, stunned and then reinvigorating and flying away is how we know that God works among the children of men. It is getting pathetic. The dilapidated dinghy is accurate. It is getting quite pathetic. Um, anyway. I remember the story and actually uh, uh, as the story was told, uh, that was while this guy, this guy who was back in college was studying for finals, right? And he got upset at this gnat and smacked and killed it. As the, the resurrected gnat was flying away, it was heard to say, help me, help me. Because <laughs> he was trying to get to the nearest hospital, I think, is what it was. The stories are getting weak because they know if they tell the dramatic ones, you and I are going to do a live show or a podcast episode, and we're going to expose these guys as bullshitting frauds. President Nelson's fundamental error here was giving too much detail so that we could yeah. track down the actual flight. That was the problem. He needs yeah, to yeah. be uh, safer in his stories and not give details that can be checked, which is what most will do. They'll, they'll use pseudonyms. They won't talk about actual dates or places or years. They keep it all generic enough that nobody can fact check it. Yep. The uh, the next call, I think I said Lance, but I think, it's, is it Joshua? Yeah, Josh. Josh, Josh, you are. Thank you, my friend. Josh, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. Uh, what do you make of, of this uh, pattern among church leaders to tell stories inaccurately? Well, it kind of reminds me of because uh, I'm a little, I'm like four years younger than you, Bill, and uh, growing up in the church, 
I've heard stories about the sweet water rescue and like, you know, <laughs> the, the old, older church member getting up during like a gospel doctrine lesson and rebuking someone who criticized church leaders for sending like the company too late. Um, and, you know, we're him saying we were rescued by angels and, and whatnot. It just remind, brings back to memories of me like eating those stories up and and finding a reason to go back to church, uh, continue going to church, you know. And I think, and I don't know this, but I think the brethren do it on purpose because they, they tell faith-promoting stories just to keep the membership, give the membership a reason to go on. And I think they tell these lies not out of uh, malice, or I want to give them the benefit of doubt. I want to say they tell themselves that whatever keeps them on the good ship sign is right. It keeps them on the straight and narrow. It keeps them on the path to eternal glory and glory. And then they'll be honored someday for doing that, for, you know, telling the lie. And anyway, I'll let you respond. I'm going to hang up. Perfect. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, once you've had the second anointing, which all of these guys have, there really isn't any requirement to tell the truth because you're going to live with Jesus again anyway. Yes. And that's a cynical way of viewing it. I know, Bill. But um, I, I like what the caller said, because honestly, this is why they're doing it. They know that they're doing it. They know they're saying things that aren't true, but it's for the very best of reasons. And that's to get people to the celestial kingdom, to keep them in the good ship Zion. And therefore, it's quite pragmatic. The ends justify the means when it comes to these stories. We've got a Facebook user who has a comment up here that poor Nat would have died without that prayer. Technically, according to the story, the Nat did die. And it was resurrected by the prayer. Just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> oh, the craziness of what we've come to. It, uh, Bruce R. McConkie would be so disappointed that we have gone come to the place where we've let go of everything, including the Garden of Eden in Missouri. We don't get our own planet. And the fact that we've, res, we've uh, uh, let ourselves get to the point to talk about gnats being resurrected after a moment of being dead as the most faith promoting stories we have to tell in the church. It is absolutely hilarious. I did an episode about that. And I re I recall that I, I figured out what the name of that Nat was. What, what is uh, it? Remember the, the name of the Nat was not given. So it's hard to fact check that story, but it was actually, it was a, the dying and resurrecting Nat. So it was Jesus of Nat Ereth. Jesus of Natareth. <laughs> yes, that was the name of the, oh, yeah. the Nat. All right. Caller, you are, you are the final call of the night. We will, we'll wrap up here. Uh, tell us your name and uh, tell us what you think about tonight's episode. Uh, my name is Mike, and uh, I'm a flight instructor. So when I heard part of the story where the engine's on fire or something like that, and then he said he had to restart the other engine, that's where I kind of thought that was really suspicious because the odds of two engines failing at the same time are pretty much, they just don't happen really. Okay, what about the other parts of the story? What do you think about um, what do you think about the death spiral? What do you think about the plane being on fire? Uh, what are some of those other things well, you think about as a flight instructor? I mean, if the, if the engine's on fire, you just pull the mixture, you cut off the fuel supply, and you go into an emergency descent. Higher airspeed extinguishes the fire, and then you just basically fly to your first airport that you can land at, and you land it, and then you report it to the NTSB. Uh, what happened. So that would be recorded. 
Can you get a, can you get away with not reporting it? Because the if the flight that RFM talked about tonight, which has so many similarities, if that's not the flight, is it even possible with the story President Nelson told for that to not be on the books? No, I mean it's it's a, it's, a, it's an air taxi or or a scheduled carrier. So I mean by law, they the pilot's just going to report it. I mean if he didn't, he'd get fired, lose his pilot license. It's right. not his fault. He would be. I mean, yeah, you just don't do that. Yeah, this this is a good story though. I mean, I think Sullenberger. You know, we RFM and I were talking about that story earlier. Maybe they could make a movie out of this one. Well, the thing is, is that's where two engines can die. Is basically they ingested hundreds of pounds of geese. Right, right. That's a real possibility, is what happened yeah. to Sully. Yeah. No, if he said that we hit a bunch of geese and we had to land in a field, that, that could happen. But for example, a couple months ago in Denver, a flight going to Hawaii, the right engine exploded and like landed in someone's house. Well, they still flew it on one engine, they landed it. So that's what they would have done. Just with one engine goes out, the other engine doesn't, it doesn't, if they're independent of each other, it's the point of having two engines and they both, one dies. yeah. And each one would have its own shut off to the fuel. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and, and for some reason, if you need to pull from the left tank, you would just switch the fuel lever and then pull from the left wing. So you hmm. have a more balanced fuel burn. But hmm. in that case though, the engine goes out, they're going South. I did flight school in Utah. There's like 40 airports you can land West of I, I-15. So if it does happen, it's not the end of the world. You just isolate the engine, declare an emergency. ATC could give you vectors to the airfield, and you just land and get it fixed and probably go on a different plane. I don't let, know. Let me ask you just one last question. We'll let you go. As a flight instructor, understanding the ins and outs of all these protocols and how planes work, do you see any way in which this story could have happened the way President Nelson said it did? No. <laughs> Not real. In my opinion, no, because that's all you do for your multi-engine license is you train for an engine out emergency. Yeah. Yeah. So when your engine dies, you go through a real quick three-step process. And even if you do go into a spin, which could happen, uh, the other engine is still going to work. Right. You don't need to turn it on because it was never off to begin no, with. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what triggered me. I was like, wait a minute, what? The other engine's off. Why would that be off? <laughs> Thank you, caller. I appreciate it, Mike, very much. Yeah, no problem. Have a great night. And Mike, Mike has said a number of important things. One of the things he said uh, corrected me from earlier in the program because I had said I didn't understand how going into a dive would extinguish the flame. And he said that, yeah, you would do that and that it could do that. So I stand corrected on that point. And, and didn't he say you go to a higher altitude to extinguish the flame? Like the air is so thin up there that you don't. That, oh. you, that the fire goes out. I thought I heard him say that, that you would actually increase the altitude and put the flame out and then go down and make the landing. I'm not sure if he said that. I can't remember exactly. I, I don't suppose he's still on the line. No, no, Mike is Mike is hung up. But if Mike wants to comment or if somebody else, uh, if somebody else knows for sure that he said that, put it in the comments. Okay. Um, but otherwise, it doesn't seem as though President Nelson's story happened the way he said it did. No, I liked uh, the question that you asked. Mike, if it sounded like it could have happened the way that, based on Mike's experience as a, a flight trainer, and he goes, pause. Yeah, no. it didn't, it didn't, seem, like <laughs> no. it didn't seem like that was the case, huh? Oh, my goodness. Um, but let's, uh, I was going to play the, the 2650 here timestamp, see if I can get to it really quick. And, what is uh, that? Oh, this is this, uh, I just want to remind people of one more little thing here, and then we'll, we'll close out the program. 
simply because we do care deeply about all of God's children that we proclaim His truth. We may not always tell people what they want to hear. Prophets are rarely popular, but we will always teach the truth. Yeah.